today we are going to be focusing a little bit on the phrase that Rina started off, an everlasting father. And we, 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 we've said in the, in the last two or three Sundays that if we, if we read the book of Isaiah as a whole, there, there, it's a complex book. And, and there is a lot of drama in it. And the way that one of the commentators has, has developed this is by, in this drama being a lot of voices, and there are three main voices that come out very clearly. First is the voice of the ambassador, and it starts off with Isaiah in chapter 6, which says, uh, when the Lord says, who shall I send? And Isaiah says, oh, send me. And then we've got the voice of the prophets, and you see that throughout the whole book with different prophecies, and you see it in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 in itself, it's a prophecy. And then we see the voice of the pastoral poets when, when it's trying to, to deal with different scenarios and reaching out to them and, and, and bringing creative ways of, of turning their hearts to God. And I've tried to, to kind of bring those three voices and weave them through as we develop Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. And then also see how did Jesus then fulfill this in the Gospels, in his life, in his ministry, and how, what impact did it have? And then us as followers then, what, what do we do with this? How does this affect us as followers of Jesus? So we've been talking about the idea of the wonderful counselor. We've been, um, last um, week we developed both at the same time, wonderful counselor and mighty God, and I took portions of the Gospels. Today, as I said, we're going to be looking at everlasting Father. Now, this has been a phrase that I have baffled a lot with because actually it's I've always been confused by the whole idea of, of the phrase coming as everlasting father because in my mind I've heard it that actually I believe in the Trinity and that there is Father, Son and Holy Spirit and how how come is this confusion? And I've been looking and, and reading the book of Isaiah and you look at the life of Jesus and you look at some also things that Jesus has said and you see that actually what Isaiah is trying to do here, he's not trying to confuse us or he's not trying to confuse the Trinity, but actually he's trying to, to highlight here a divine nature of the Messiah, but also he's also trying to, to highlight that the only person that is able to, to, to reveal the Father to us is Jesus. So, so when, when the prophecy says that he's going to be an everlasting father, there is this element of the fatherly element of, of Jesus. Now, the disclaimer here is that whenever we hear the word father, it triggers something. And I think it's, it's important that we approach this scripture 
with, with, the, with the desire to actually that if God is promising that he's going to be the everlasting father and if we see the fatherly figure in Jesus then we're saying to God please through the power of, holy, through the power of your Holy Spirit dismantle in me all the disfigures that I have got in my heart or in my mind as I think of this passage. Now, it's, it's important that we, we look at this in, in the life of Jesus. So, when, when we say that, that it's this, this Father, uh, when we talk about the Old Testament and the, 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 the meaning of the word Father in the Old Testament, it's, it's the meaning of source. So if we're saying the, the everlasting Father, we, we're kind of uh, saying, look at the book of Isaiah as well, that, that is this everlasting source of life. You know, when you look at the Gospel of John, and Jesus says, before everything was, I am. Jesus has been everything uh, from the beginning. But I'm a little bit come to this phrase a little bit with, with the same question that, that Thomas had in John chapter 14, and we're going to look at that and say, but show us the Father. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we're going to be looking at the, at the Father heart of Jesus, Father heart of God, which is actually reflected in Jesus' life and ministry. And we're going to do that on those three levels, as we said. So let's not lose time, and let's go a little bit at the pastoral poet. And we said that, that the, the task of the pastoral poet is to link with the reality and bring a new contact with the memories that will generate life. Again, the pastoral poet sees something that is not going right. And in, in its creativity, is going to bring a point of contact where people can identify with it. A new contact. And from that point, life is going to come. Open our Bibles in John chapter 2. We're going to mainly be working at the Gospel of John today. Gospel of John chapter 2. And it's the first miracle that Jesus performs at the Gospel of John. And John himself writes this. And there is this miracle that actually... It's, it's, a, it's an amazing miracle. Now, Jesus turns water into wine in a wedding. We need to realize that the context here is that the weddings in those days are a little bit what the weddings these days are still in Albania. When I got married 13 years ago, we had a four-week-long wedding. 
And for that, we had a wedding celebration here in England, so it makes it five. So, yeah. But it's 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 a long, it's it's celebration, you know. So if I if I wanted to bring you an understanding of what goes on at a wedding back home, is that the first day it's it's the bride invites all her friends and they have a big jolly party. And then on Friday there is another big party that you invite all the neighbors to come and celebrate. And then on Saturday, the bride invites all her family and they celebrate. And then on Sunday, and the, the bridegroom invites, I'll change the microphone. Somebody called me Britney at the early uh, part of the service. <laughs> um, on the Sunday, the bridegroom um, has a big party. So, so it goes on, and, and the, the most important thing here is that on a wedding, you need to be in the position to honor guests, because it's an honor and shame culture. And what's happening here is that on this wedding feast, then they run out of wine which would be a shame for the family, which would be a great embarrassment, which will be the conversation of the community for the next 13 years of how the wine did run on that wedding and how the, 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 the wedding master was not prepared and had not done the right calculations. And Jesus is invited to this wedding. And there is this encounter which he does something which is really remarkable. So he takes, he is inviting this wedding, they run out of the wine. He's got this conversation with his mother about his time not coming. And then he asks to bring the water that is used for. Um, actually, temple for, for, for cleansiness. There were sacrificial um, elements there. And he says, I want that water. And then it turns it into wine. And what is the impression? The impression is funny enough, in every wedding, everybody gives the best wine in the beginning because. The assumption is that everybody will get drunk and they'll, they'll not taste the wine later on. Whereas this wedding master has chosen the best wine for the end. And this is a moment for Jesus, the pastoral poet, to create something, a new point of contact, which is going to pave the road for him to be able to minister, for him to be able to speak into people's lives. And what I want to read from chapter 2 verse, it's only verse 11, and it says, This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus received his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. The pastor poet sees the shame 
an embarrassment and turns it into a feast, turns it into an opportunity for people to turn their faces towards him. So whenever the prophet is saying that the son and the child that is given to us is going to be wonderful counselor, he's going to be mighty God, he's going to be everlasting father. This is how Jesus is showing his fatherly attitude because basically he is saving this family from the embarrassment. And he's, in his creativity, he's reaching out for people who say, well, who is this guy that is turning water that we use to wash our feet and, and hands into wine and become the best wine? Then we move on to the prophet. And we said that the task of the prophet is not just ideologies, it's not just formal um, theories, is, is, is this opportunity to, to communicate God's truth with the expectant, with, with this great expectance of, of transformation. And look at, look at the, the, the whole idea of, of Jesus showing his fatherly figure or fatherly heart to his disciples. Yes, there was elements that he created this new context, but there was elements when he was with his disciples and they needed correction. So when we talk about a prophet here, we talk about that the reason why the prophet speaks up is because he sees, she sees something that is not going well and therefore needs addressing because thus says the Lord. And in, in reaction is the expectation that because God has said it, we need to do it. So with Jesus reaching out to his disciples here, there's this element that actually he's been with them for quite a bit of time now, but he's not sparing his correction. And I think we need to, to, to be reminding ourselves that as much as we want for Jesus to be wonderful counselor, as, one, as much as we want for him to be mighty God, as much as we want to be everlasting father of Prince of Peace, there's elements there that we need to comply with. So the reason why I correct my daughters for running when the traffic light is red is because if they don't know that to be red is to stop, they're going to be in trouble. One day across the road on, the, on their own, they're going to be run over. So the reason why Jesus is, 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 is creating this pattern of, of correcting the disciples is by giving them opportunities to transform them because he knows that if they don't transform, they're going to be in trouble. So as we approach this passage, I, I just want to ask the question, how do we deal with the notion of God's correcting us? Are we open to that? Let's have a look at my favorite 
character of the New Testament. Peter, John 13. Now, John 13 talks about Peter, who actually, it was Jesus' closest disciple. He knew Jesus' heart. Jesus knew him inside out. Jesus was on his route to Jerusalem to be crucified. And he wants to be prophetic here in the way that he deals with his disciples. I'll read this passage because I love it. And that's not the only reason though. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Verse 2 goes, The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had pulled all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord says, Then, sorry, Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. And then, he carries on the conversation. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. He called me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and chief teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. So there is this, this, this prophetic element here that Jesus is, is coming and he, he wants them to be transformed. But he's going to do that in a caring way, in a fatherly way. He's not going to, to, he's not going to, to come to this place of saying that actually, guys, all you need to do now is take off your sandals, and, and start washing your feet or start washing one another's feet but he's coming from that place of bringing transformation because the expectation there is by, by this example he's expecting that when he leaves that the disciples will continue to do that same thing to one another 
So do you see that the, 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 the expecting of this prophecy is transformation? And you can already see how this, this prophetic movement is, is changing Peter. And it's changing the world. Then we move on to the whole idea of the ambassador. And we said that the, the role of the ambassador is got the primary it's the primarily or it's the prime channel of communication. And how is Jesus going to fulfill this everlasting Father by communicating to his disciples? Well, we only need to go one chapter after John 13, when in John 14 he's still talking with his disciples. But it's, it's very interesting how the language of John is so strongly about the father figure of God. And we, we're going to start with John 18. And it says there that actually Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. But when I leave this place, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. So this element of the ambassador, so it's not only the representative, but it's the means of communication. And it's so important because the disciples are all losing their heads because their master is leaving them. And Jesus' fatherly heart reaches out to them and says, guys, don't worry. This is all sorted. But somebody needs to communicate that. Somebody needs to, to be the primary means of communication in order for them to carry on the great task. Let's read that. Chapter 14, verses 15 onwards. So, the, the beginning of chapter 14 is the Thomas um, dialogue and stuff that I mentioned earlier on. Um, so, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The, word, the world cannot accept him, because neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will, see, will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live in you, and you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. What a great picture. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. So we come back to this picture of everlasting Father. And we see how kind of Jesus um, reflects this and, and, and imparts this in his ministry. But what does it have to do with our discipleship? 
So if we're saying that Jesus is this pastoral poet who's trying to find ways of, of, of creating this, this care and releasing people from shame and fear, how is the church doing that today in the 21st century? If we're saying that we are in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father and we should reflect that, then what does that look for us? On the way that we live our lives as individuals, but in the decisions that we make as a church. Are we reflecting the fatherness? Are we reflecting the father heart of God in what we do? What about when it comes to profit and transformation and correction? How are we responding to that? If the expectation is transformation, well, Lord started with me, show me, and help me to realize that actually, a little bit like Peter, that to be challenged with a second question or a third question for me to transform. If we're saying that there is this element of Jesus being the ambassador, and he's leading by example. Well, <coughs> the story of the gospel does not finish in John 14. It ends with Matthew 28. When you and me and the, the ones before us have been given the button to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So as we come to conclusion and as we take part in God's table. I just really, I've got two things that I, I want to share as an application with us. First of all is that in our approach to this phrase, the everlasting Father, that I want, my prayer is that today we leave this place dismantling some disfigured pictures of fathers and enjoying the fatherhood of God. And the second thing that I want us to do and pray this week is that as we look at this prophecy, I want for us to turn our theology into praise. That our response is worship. When we were singing that song, um, I will I'll sing to and worship the King who is worthy. I'll love Him and adore Him. I'll bow down before Him. In my heart, I'm saying, sing it, church. Because we want for that worship to be transformational. But unless we're in that place of recognizing that He is truly wonderful counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, for you, for us, for this world, until the prophecy is fulfilled fully. Let's pray. So Father, thank you for the truthfulness of the prophecy. And I pray, Lord, that today you're going to Transform our lives, Lord. And started with me by dismantling at least one picture 
that is not a true reflection of your fatherly heart. And I pray, Jesus, that the truthfulness of your words and this prophecy will be so tangible, especially as I think today, Lord, of you being my everlasting Father, who cares, who wants to be releasing me of my shame and embarrassment, who wants to correct me, and who wants to release me because I'm not an orphan, but because you've given me the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your work in our lives. Thank you for the work on the cross, for the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And as we participate in this meal, Lord, we truly want to call you tonight, to this morning, Lord, our Father. Look at the love that God has showed to us, that we may be called children of God. And today, Lord, we cry out to you, Abba Father, we are your daughters and your sons. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.